Well, once again, listeners, we have achieved the impossible and made it to Friday. Big thanks to all of you who are are still listening after a year and three months and change of the Brother Trucker Book Club podcast. Uh, it's, It's always fun to plan these episodes out and share what I've been reading with you. Uh, especially when I managed to find some books that I really, really enjoy. So today is Good Friday. Um, Hopefully, we're focusing on what we've got to be grateful for, whether we're of any religious persuasion or not. This last weekend was the 190th General Conference of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and uh, the president of the church invited everybody to do a, a worldwide fast today on Good Friday, to uh, put an end to the COVID-19 threat, to uh, stabilize the economy, to normalize life, just to to make this all go away and and, uh, get better for us. And um, It's been really cool to see the response to that that people have had. Uh, There was a Facebook group that you might have seen going around. It's got a couple hundred thousand members in it now, and and it's not just Latter-day Saints in it. There are Muslims and Jews and people of different Christian denominations, even a couple of atheists that were like, you know, hey, I don't, I don't pray or anything. I don't believe in God, but you know, how do I, how do I participate in this? You know, th- that being the case. So that was really cool. Um, it's nice to see that even with seven and a half billion of us on this planet, we can still find a way to pull together and set aside our differences and focuses on focuses focus on what unites us all and that is that we're all human beings we're all susceptible to this and we're, we're hoping that we get it whacked and get it behind us real soon so that life can get back to normal so without any further adieus without further ado without any more delays whatever let's jump into this ready and so i've got two non-fictions a novel and then uh, a quick didactic section, and then uh, today we've also got some mailbag to get to, surprisingly enough. That happens quite rarely, but I was glad to see one come in today, and uh, made me realize that one of you guys had emailed me a while back, and I think I responded to you privately on it, but I never addressed it here on the podcast, so we'll, we'll do that and uh, hopefully get more of those. Uh, Ron Chernow... I think I said his name right. It might be... No, I'm pretty sure it's Chernow. Um, He wrote a book on Alexander Hamilton uh, back in the day. I'd say that like within the last 20 years or so. I read it in 2015 when I was doing long runs for Luggers and such between Vegas and Reno. It's a 35-hour book, so I bumped up the playback speed and killed it in a couple of days because that's that's an eight- or nine-hour run one way in the truck. And uh, just fascinating subject, and Chernow is a very, very detail-oriented biographer, sometimes too much. I feel like there there were times in that book that could have gone a little bit faster. Well, he also wrote a biography on J.D. Rockefeller, who is one of those names that you hear all the time, and you you get that he was one of these big capitalist tycoons of the early 1900s and blah, 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 and then you know that there's a Rockefeller Center in New York and all that. So I decided, well, maybe it's time I actually read a biography about this guy. I know that he was in oil. And it was like the Hamilton book. It was it was very, very fascinating. He found a way, Chernow did, to, uh, to get into all the nitty-gritty details about J.D. Rockefeller's life and 
and illustrate a very, very complete picture of him. Uh, I'll just sum up some of it here. His mother was a devout Christian woman, very you know righteous and pious and all that. His father was a, a bigamist and a con man. And that had a long-lasting impact on Rockefeller because he chose to live like his mom and he chose to try to uh, make his father's way of life impossible as he went on. Um, you know, he learned discipline and detail orientation and work ethic and stuff in his youth. And then when the uh, oil boom took uh, took place in in uh, the post-Civil War era, Rockefeller was born in 1839. Uh, so just as Rockefeller was becoming an adult, uh, the post-war era was, was fully... What's the word I'm looking for? It was freaking everywhere, okay? Like, it was... That, that was the era he was up and coming in. Industry was, was ready to boom. There were a lot of needs that needed to be met. So he, uh, he jumped in on that and decided that he was going to get into oil. I didn't know that there was an oil boom in Cleveland, Ohio, near the Great Lakes when this happened. Um, makes sense based on some of the paleontological books that I've read in the last couple of years. I just never knew that. So... Uh, there was a big boom and bust cycle where these fly-by-night companies would pop up and they'd get as much oil as they could out of the ground and then they'd try to ship it to refineries or they'd try to build a refinery on the spot. And then things would flatten out, the demand would flatten out, maybe there'd be too much supply, they'd lay everybody off, and then the supply would dwindle and the demand would increase and more companies would pop up. Rockefeller saw a lot of waste and inefficiency there. And that was one thing he wanted to remedy. So with his company, he made it a point to uh, to try to introduce stability and predictability. He tried to make sure that his deliveries ran on time, even to the point where like he'd be down on the docks or standing on trains, like yelling at his workers, "Get this one going! Get this one going! It's got to be to New York in you know eight hours and twelve minutes." It, it, he was just so on top of things. His mind was always on, and especially for our generation, that's a hard thing to comprehend because we are always distracted. The smartphone device that you're probably listening to this podcast with is a large reason why. Well, Rockefeller saw that the way past that was through through discipline and through hard work, and uh, that's how his company first found its its solid footing. And then he used it to start buying up other companies. And then his job or his vision rather was to control the entirety of the oil market. Um, this is what would later spurn. Uh, the government into creating antitrust laws and uh, anti-monopoly laws because this is where we're going to get into deep philosophy consolidating power into one person or one entity is a bad idea generally because all you need is one person to come along and screw up everybody's life but rockefeller was you know his, his vision was to not be one of those guys you know he viewed his ability to make money as a talent that God gave him. Uh, Rockefeller, like I said, he followed in his mom foot, mom's footsteps. He was a devout Baptist his entire life. And his his personal vision was to make a truckload of money every single day so that he could turn around and become a uh, philanthropist. And so uh, once the, um, the Standard Oil Company was the name of it, be, became like the name in oil, people started getting ticked off. They're like, well, you know, we want to work in oil, but we don't want to work for Rockefeller. We want to do our own thing. And he's like, yeah, too bad. I control all of this and I'm going to do uh, good stuff with it. He was building universities. He was trying to, uh, you know, build schools and institutions that uh, advanced black people. And, you know, those uh, institutions kind of got co-opted by people who were real SOBs and made it not work as effectively as 
Rockefeller's vision mandated. So it was it was just really cool to see that side of him that he wasn't just some guy who's like, haha, I am smart enough to become successful and that makes it okay. It was it was no, it was like I'm smart enough and I'm uh diligent enough to make this happen and I want to do good things to it. Another thing that I didn't know was he pretty much invented the practice of uh, modern medicine laboratories and studies and, and foundations and stuff like that in America and in basically in the first world and in the West because one of the things that his dad did that really ticked him off was he was a snake oil salesman. He was a, like I said, he was a con man. And so he'd, you know, slap any number of chemical concoctions together and people who, you know, in the 1800s were doctors were, were doing this pretty commonly. What they did back then was little more than uh, homegrown remedies, homeopathy, and uh, and just utter bullcrap. Like it was a few steps removed from witchcraft, and that was it. And so uh, Rockefeller was big into the sciences because he wanted to uh, establish what real medicine was and make it impossible for con men to bilk hundreds of thousands of dollars out of people with fake medicine and lemon juice. And uh, and so that's what kind of got the uh, the medical research field going in the United States. Uh, there's also segments on muckraking, on journalists who made it their business to go stirring up crap between Rockefeller and people he'd worked with before who, uh, you know, he bought out and then they got pissed off later that he was more successful than, than he was. Just all really, really cool. I thought it was especially cool that uh, an antitrust case that he was involved in that made it all the way to the Supreme Court uh, broke up his company into 32 other companies because it was too big. And then he had to bring in, you know, new blood, but trained all these new uh, trustees and board members and stuff to kind of do things his way. And they realized that he was being extremely conservative with the assets that his company had. And his personal dividends were still tied to all 32 of those companies. So basically this one company that was all about you know stability and predictability got broken up into 32 companies that are all like hey let's ramp up production and get things really really booming that turned rockefeller into like pretty close to the first billionaire ever and so uh, everything just kind of worked for his benefit in a sense but not just because you know things were were easy for him and landed on him like he worked really really hard and he was cunning and at the times he was even a little bit cutthroat but uh, he had a vision for that, and it was it was fascinating to see all that play out. So, really cool book. I learned a lot about it. I learned uh, not just about a person, but the values that made a person successful and ultimately made him great. Not just the time that he lived in in the industry, but his his personal philosophy and his values. So, check out Titan by Ron Chernow. Speaking of American Titans, here's a contemporary of J.D. Rockefeller's who was actually not a huge fan of him. And when he was president, he put a lot of policies into practice that were designed to, you know, make it harder for Rockefeller to complete his vision and to have as much economic and financial power as he ultimately ended up having. Theodore Roosevelt, American BAMF, as we all love him to, and, and know him to be. Uh, I specifically wanted to read a book about his time with the Rough Riders in uh, the Spanish-American War. So this book was called Rough Riders. You know, Theodore Roosevelt, blah, blah, blah. It's like one of those books with a massively long subtitle. It's by Mark Lee Gardner. And uh, man alive, it was just a completely different era back then, 122 years ago when the Spanish-American War broke out. Gives you a little bit of history about how it started, you know, why America and Spain ended up going to war. There was a boat that exploded. 
off the coast of Cuba, the USS Maine, its um, its powder room went up and you know the blew up the boat, sunk it, and the newspapers were immediately like, "Oh, Spanish torpedoes blew up this boat." They didn't know that. They didn't know squat, but we ended up going to war, and uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was out west, was like, "Dude, I've got to get in on this war," and that's not an exaggeration, except for the fact he probably didn't say "dude." But he was just like, he was all about getting that glory and being on the front lines to do it. He had to put together a volunteer regiment of, you know, cattle rustlers and cowboys and uh, some Indians from Oklahoma and all that. And then he was like in, in just a mad rush to get across the southeast United States to get to Tampa so that he could make sure he was on the ships that were sailing to Cuba to kick the Spanish out. And he's like, you know, come hell or high water, you know, by by the will of God, I will be on that boat. I am not going to miss out on this fight. And, and it wasn't just like, geez, we look at politicians now. We look at people that want to be leaders in the country. And they all want to, like, say that they were there. They all want to, like, oh, yeah, I was totally, I did cool stuff. And you find out that they're, like, you know, in a tent somewhere while actual foot soldiers were, were doing the work instead of the blue bloods. Roosevelt was absolutely an American blue blood but this dude completely 100% got his hands dirty like he was he was not afraid to go you know live with his men and you know live like his men and when when rations were short and resources were thin uh you know he would use his own money to feed his guys give them good food and and all that crap in a time when there were lines drawn between you know officers and the enlisted just just incredible like like the titan book it's one where i learned a lot of values that i myself want to emulate um namely that much like rockefeller roosevelt had focus he had grit by by the shovel full but he had this incredible focus this is a guy whose mind was always on and he would not distract himself or dedicate any of his focus to anything that was not a, a worthy effort Tangentially, I'm also going to recommend another book, but I'm not going to get into it too much here. I'll probably do an official review of it later called Mornings on Horseback by David McCullough. That one's interesting because it's all about Teddy Roosevelt up until I think he turned 27. So it's not about like his military exploits or uh, or his, his his political career or anything. It's It was about his upbringing. It was how the man was made, which is fascinating in its own right. It's been nine years since I read that one. I need to take another crack at it. I've got a signed copy at home because, yeah, I got to meet David McCullough. He's awesome. But anyway, check out this Rough Riders book by Mark Lee Gardner. It was fantastic. Really good read. All right. Another one by Louis L'Amour. My boy L'Amour, the great American novelist. No, it wasn't Hemingway. No, it wasn't J.D. Salinger. No, it wasn't Good Night. It was not F. Scott Fitzgerald. It was Louis L'Amour. And he didn't just write westerns, he wrote frontier stories. So The Diamond of Giroux, I, I'd i heard of this one before, I couldn't remember where, so I, I checked it out from Overdrive from my library. And I got a little bit into it and I realized I'd seen a made-for-TV movie about it. Uh, my friend Julie, back like, geez, this must have been like 15 years ago, uh, we were hanging out at her house. She's like, oh, I got this movie. And she pulls out this VHS cause, like tape because she had recorded it off of TV or something. And uh, it had Billy Zane in it back when he was this, like, hot 90s heartthrob dude. Um, the The movie takes place, the story takes place, in 1955 or so, so, like, post-Korean War. And uh, the main character is a guy named Mike Kardak, and he is uh, an Army veteran, 
uh, wait, he might have been a Marine. He's a military veteran, and he's in Borneo, and he's trying to get rich off of diamonds. I guess there were a lot of diamond explorers and stuff, but Borneo was not really well mapped out, and a lot of Europeans that came to that place would kind of hang out around like the the beaches and the fringes of the land, and they wouldn't go into the interior because they were still well-armed, angry natives there that were headhunters and head collectors. And uh, Kardak, he starts the book, he starts the story out like he actually does have this massive load of diamonds that he just was able to get from the interior. And as he's heading back towards the coast, like his boat sinks and he loses all of his diamonds. He's just got terrible, terrible luck. And while he's back on the coast, he meets this American couple, uh, John and Helen, that uh, they're trying to, you know, rekindle their marriage and, and all that stuff. And so they, they come to Borneo looking for, uh, looking for adventure and whatnot. And John's like specifically there looking for diamonds and wanting to go on an expedition. And Helen is there, you know, just trying to make her marriage better with her husband. And they hire Kardak as their guide. But while they're there and after they make arrangements with him and he starts warning him about all the dangers of the interior and whatnot, these natives come up and show him this huge diamond like the size of a baby's fist and uh john's like all right screw you mike we're uh, going to go with these guys instead and he goes let me guess they showed you a diamond the size of a baby's fist and john's like yeah so what he goes yeah um these guys kind of go around a lot and uh anytime they lead europeans or americans into the interior those people are never seen again you shouldn't do this but john's an idiot he goes ahead and Mike feels bad because he starts to, to uh, develop uh, feelings for Helen. And so he's like, all right, damn it, I got to go in. So it's the story of Mike trying to go in and rescue John and Helen from these uh, these natives and and uh, their their tribal leader, Drew. So awesome, awesome story. And I the audio edition that I listened to was a full cast narration with sound effects. You guys know how much I love that, the whole movie in your mind effect. Plus, Lamore is just an awesome storyteller, and there's really not, uh, I mean, other than some religious blasphemy exclamations, there isn't much uh, in the way of, you know, content or anything, because Lamore doesn't rely on that to tell a good story. So check out, check out The Diamond of Jeru by Louis Lamore. Okay, let's talk about Goodreads. What is Goodreads? You probably heard of it. You might even be on it. Goodreads is a social media network for readers. It was started, I want to say, in maybe 2006. My brother told me about it. He and his wife were early subscribers to the service. I got in in 2008, so September will make 12 years since I started an account. Uh, I wasn't much into it at first, but I really liked the idea of being able to keep track of what you have read and when you read it, because it it uh, allows you to add books to your account. You get to list whether you have read them, want to read them, or are currently reading them. And then like, it'll even tell you, like, oh, you started it on this date, you finished it on that date, blah, blah, blah. When I say things like, oh, I've read 1,500 books, this is how I know. Because I check in my, my list and it's like, oh, yeah, the books that you have read, it's like 15, 19 or something right now. And then I, I'll keep a list of about three dozen or so that I want to read at any given time. And then I'll just work off of that. Off of the, uh, and that's how I keep track of what I'm currently reading. Uh, it also makes it easy to recommend books to friends. You know, you add friends on there. Excuse me. And it's not invasive like other social media stuff where you're putting up pictures of your family and all that. You just, you you finish reading a book, you rate it, you might even leave a review, and uh, and it's cool. I've I found it really useful in in that instance. I've got a bunch of my writer friends though who really hate Goodreads and that are against it. And 
I'm, I don't hate it, but I get certain features that are hated and quite deserve that hate. I wanted to talk about that, kind of give you the ups and downs of it. One of the many downsides of Goodreads is that you know anybody can jump on there and leave a review of a book, whether they've read it or not. And so in today's hyper-politicized era, if somebody doesn't like an author, they can just go and bomb their, their book and, and have it so that you know some normie will log in and like, oh, I wanted to check this book out. Oh, it's only got a two-star average on Goodreads. It must not be a good book. It's like, no, it just it got nuked. Uh, another annoying feature is that you can... You can review or rate a book before it has even come out. Um, I wish they would put a control into place that would allow people to not do that. Like, I get that people highly anticipate books. Um, you know, the, the Toll by Neil Shusterman, for example, like it had, it had a thousand four and five star ratings like a year before it even came out because they'd created a listing for it in anticipation of its release. But they didn't, you know, and even even with a date on there saying like anticipated release late 2019, people were already, you know, rating it and everything. And it's like, well, you know, what's the point of the service if it's just a, a popularity contest? And that same issue kind of bleeds over into their best of the year uh, awards that they do starting in like October. They'll have, uh, you know, a dozen different genres, everything from nonfiction to cookbooks to children's books, children's picture books, YA, sci-fi, romance, uh, general fiction, literature, and all that, and you can you can vote in each category for the one that you want to win for that category. Here's the problem: once again, you can vote for a book that hasn't even come out and been read yet, and that pretty much guarantees that the most popular author will win the category. And in in that case, it's it's basically a prom vote. It's not about whether that book was any good uh this was really glaring in 2017 when andy weir's next book artemis came out uh he was still riding high on on the martian and all the success of that book and uh everybody was was like electing or voting for uh, artemis to win in the sci-fi category and it's like how are you going to give it a win it's still two weeks from coming out you know why were you are you going to hold the best of year awards in october why not hold it in January when A, the year is over, and B, nothing the hell else is even happening? You know, I, I've had an issue with that for years, and that's why for the last uh, three or four years, I've abstained from voting in the best of year Goodyear Goodreads Awards. Uh, about, I don't know, five years back, I want to say, Amazon bought Goodreads, and a lot of people were worried that it was going to become hyper-monetized. It's always had ads on it. Uh, those are just ads for books. It's not like, you know, you watch a baseball game and then you go and log into Goodreads and it's like, oh, you watch baseball. Here's a Viagra ad. No, it, it's all for different books. It's still kind of targeted. It, co it constantly hits me with ads for books that I have zero interest in. So maybe they need to kind of fine tune it that way. But I think Amazon just bought it to get the data on what people were reading. That was a value to them because then it makes it easier for them to recommend books that people would want to buy on Amazon, which... Amazon's recommendations for me are pretty good. Goodreads recommendations for me pretty much suck. So there are ups and downs to it, but I just use it as a pretty close social network. I don't, you know, just add anybody who sends me a friend request. I, I think I've got like a hundred something friends on there and I, I know all of them, whether from, you know, real life or from the writing community. And that's pretty much it. So uh, if you're not on Goodreads and you want to check it out, uh, look me up, give me an ad. You can see the, the books that I've written, the books that I've read, the books that I'm reading and all that stuff. Uh, so check it out. That's Goodreads for you. All right. Still with me? Cool. 
Last of all is mailbag. We got two pieces here. First one is from my boy Christian. Uh, we were mission companions back in Spain. What's up, Christian? Uh, he recommended a series for me called Adventurers Wanted by M.L. Foreman. Um, I had actually read the first one of this series back in 2008 when I worked for Deseret Book. I worked at a bookstore in Orem, Utah for, for two years in my, in my college days. And uh, I got an advanced copy of it because it was one of like their next middle grade fantasy series that they were doing. And I think the first book was called like Slathbog's Gold or, or something. And I read it and it was, my impression of it was that it was a pretty thinly veiled reskin of The Hobbit. Um, it, it, the character was similar to Bilbo. He wasn't bougie. He was, he was an orphan kid because it's middle grade. Uh, but there was you know, everything down to excuse me, um, you know, the trolls that turned to stone and, and all that stuff. Um, it made it, you know, it was still fun and interesting, you know, or at least it would be for the target audience and that's fine. Um, I, I saw like the covers of the next several books and one of them was like very obviously it was, it looked like Gimli standing in front of Balad's tomb in the mines of Moria. And I'm like, all right, this guy's just basically rewriting Lord of the Rings, but uh, you know, if it was suable, they wouldn't be doing it. He was, he's just, maybe it's an homage you know, I as a writer do that all the time. So I, I didn't really pay it too much heat after that. Christian read all five of them, really, really loved them. So uh, I was thinking about it the other day when I had this idea pop into my head that I've kind of thought it would always be interesting to jump into a book series after it's done, but maybe read them out of order or read them backwards. And I thought, well, I've got access to all five audiobooks of this series on the Deseret Bookshelf app. So I'm going to give that a try. Uh, thanks to Christian's recommendation and you know all this windshield time that I'm getting at work. It'll take me a while, but I'll, I'll probably do an episode on this series and on this experiment after I have finished listening to all of them backwards. So there's that one. Uh, the next one comes from Ramona Davies, who asks, you know, uh, let's see here. Dear Brother Trucker, thanks for doing the podcast. Love listening to it. Uh, I was wondering if you have read any dystopia novels. Of, okay, so dystopia, let's talk about that. It, this is a genre that was really popular about 10 years ago, and it has kind of fizzled out, probably because it was kind of overdone and uh, in a lot of ways misunderstood. Dystopia is the opposite of utopia, where you know a place where everything's perfect, a dystopia is a place where everything sucks. Uh, the Hunger Games was dystopic. It was also more totalitarian. It was pseudo-post-apocalyptic because, you know, the entire world wasn't destroyed, but first world civilization as we know it was wiped way, way the heck out. And and uh, there's a much lower population. There's a much greater concentration of control and power. And if you're not inside the power structure, you are brutally subjugated by it. Um, people also counted the Maze Runner as a dystopia. That was more... Again, of a post-apocalyptic, I guess you could count it as a dystopia where everything sucks, but I th I, a dystopia is more of like a societal organization where everything sucks. Um, I, I feel like it has more to do with, with power than, you know, environmental or economic circumstance. Uh, a book that was recommended to me a lot at the peak of this... Um, at the peak of this craze, and this is one that Ramona recommends, she goes on to, to recommend this series called Chaos Walking... Uh, I'd read the first book in it called The Knife of Never Letting Go, and I'm sorry to disappoint you, Ramona, I did not care for that book. It's, like, set on another planet, and I was kind of expecting there to be a bit more of a... of an astronaut vibe, but it was more of just like, hey, let's go to another planet, but treat it like 
you know, going to another continent. You know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of that going on, which, okay, you know, fine, whatever. We're human, humanity has branched out into space and we're living on different worlds now. But the, the dystopic element of this was that the entire colony was uh, male. The entire population was male and everybody was able to hear everybody else's thoughts all the time. And it's an interesting concept but the execution proved that, for me anyway, it really didn't branch beyond being anything but an interesting concept. Because the execution just made it completely annoying to read. Uh, I don't know how the audio works. I tried reading it in print. This is back when I had an agent. She recommended it to me. And I was like, really? This sucks. Um, when, when you're reading something that is in somebody else's voice, there's like a change in the font. But then it gets even weirder. Like you can hear animals' voices. If there's like a male crocodile in the swamp up the street from your house, you can hear that. Um, the, the main character, what's his name, Todd? Uh, he's got a dog that is always, you know, saying things to him in dog voice. I'm like, oh, dude, no. Um, especially, you know, me being male and knowing what kind of stuff randomly goes through a man's mind especially you know a, a teenage boy's mind this main character todd was like 15 I'm like dude i i don't even want to hear that crap when it's going on in my own head i sure as heck don't want to hear it when it's going on in anybody else's so I, I i found it to be for me anyway not the most engaging concept uh, i heard they made a movie of it a few years ago or they tried to but distribution and the timing of release became a big old hassle because uh I guess in this story, they do eventually have a female character come in in the first... I don't remember this one too well. Like I said, I didn't care for it too much, and I, I read it nine years ago. Um, but the main characters are played by Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley, who were really, really busy being you know, Spider-Man and being in, in the new Star Wars movies. So somehow in between those projects, they found time to make this movie, and then it never got distributed because... You know, they didn't want it going up against the, the much bigger tentpole films that these guys have been doing. I don't know if it's going to end up on Netflix or whatever. Um, but to bring it back to your original question, Ramona, dystopia is like any other genre or subgenre where if, if the story is interesting, everything else is just backdrop. And I've read some of them that are interesting, some of them that, that weren't. Um, some of them that weren't really clearly defined, that weren't necessarily dystopias, but they were there was something else and they were just kind of pitched under that umbrella because... People 10 years ago you know, understood that a dystopia story was going to have a certain flavor to it, and it just it was a term that made it easier for marketing. But I would say, you know, to bring this all back to the original uh, question, I have, and my favorite dystopia is definitely, hands down, no questions asked, The Hunger Games. Um, I've read The Maze Runner. I really enjoyed the first one. Um, my interest took a nosedive in the second one. Uh, just because I, I thought the concept of being in the maze and trying to get out made for, for one good story, but I don't feel like there was a whole lot more to do after that. Um, or it, you know, at least not with what happened you know, in, in the Scorch Trials, but you know, Dashner was really, really successful with that trilogy. I guess it was a trilogy, and he's gone on to write you know, one or two more books in that series, and he had the, the whole you know, bit with the movie series coming out, so good on him. Uh, it just comes back to not every book is going to be for every person. And sometimes that even means books in the same series. You know, I really, really love, for example, the Red Rising books, but only the original trilogy. I thought Iron Gold was really good, but uh, its greatness would depend on the follow-up in Dark Age. And I did not get into Dark Age. I got about two-fifths of the way through it, and I jumped ship. It just was not for me, which is fine because the original trilogy wrapped up great. So... 
Uh, at the end of all this, there are going to be books that you guys love, and um, I'm not going to knock you for loving something that I don't love. I'm not even going to knock you necessarily for loving a book that I disliked. I think there are very few books out there that are hands down objectively bad and that deserve no human attention, but Fifty Shades of Grey comes to mind, and I haven't read it, and I don't need to read it to know that it's crap, but, you know, you guys aren't out there reading stuff that's that's that bad, so um, I hope that you continue to find books that you like and, and share them with me, and we'll talk about it here. If you guys want to send me an email, dreadpennies at gmail.com. I'd love to get more mailbag questions from you. That was, was one of the uh, eventual goals with starting this podcast early last year. So I'm a little bit long on this episode. Hope you guys enjoy it going into this Easter weekend and uh, keep that social distance, I guess. Wash your hands. Um, don't be stupid with your masks. If you put a mask on, don't touch it. Don't take it off and all that jazz. And uh, just be smart. Stay safe. We are, I feel like we're on the back end of this thing and, and uh, we're pretty close to riding it out. So Summer is right around the corner. There are always better days ahead. Until then, drive safe. See you out there.